The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Archaeology is often viewed as a fascinating, eclectic, yet ultimately quaint pursuit. This program explores archaeology from the perspective of professionals who demonstrate that in the 21st century, archaeology and its sub-disciplines may hold the key, not only to our past, but to our present and future. Welcome to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology, with your host, Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Spend the next hour exploring where we came from and where we're headed with a leading researcher and practitioner in the field. Now, here is Dr. Schuldenrein. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology. Uh, Glad to have you here today. Uh, Today's program is a little unusual, but one that I think we'll be talking, uh, the subject of which I think we'll be talking about increasingly as time goes on. And the uh, topic of today is a cultural heritage management and the applications of archaeology to the tourism and heritage management industries. And my special guest today is Dr. Douglas Comer. Uh, Dr. Comer is Principal for Cultural Site Research and Management, the president of the CR- CSRM Foundation, and the co-president of ICOMOS, which is the International Scientific Committee on, Histor- on Archaeological Heritage Management. Dr. Comer has served as chief of the United States National Park Service Applied Archaeology Center, the chair of the Maryland Governor's Advisory Committee on Archaeology, and chair of the Nomination Committee for the Register of Professional Archaeologists. Uh, Dr. Comer has been very active at the American Center for Oriental Research in Amman, Jordan, and has worked extensively in Southeast Asia and has been work and working for many, many years on a variety of international projects associated with heritage management, preservation, and future technologies in archaeology. Doug, thanks so much for being on the program. That's my great pleasure, Joe. Thank you for asking. Doug, uh, let's, you're, you're the expert here, and, and it's an area that I kind of wish more archaeologists would get involved in because, and we've discussed this in the past, certainly, uh, heritage management is the road of the future, I think. And um, you're certainly one of the pioneers involved in this. Why don't you give us a little bit of background on how you got involved in it and how you see heritage management and preservation management um, becoming an increasingly important part in, in contemporary archaeology? Yes, Joe, I think, as you say, it is going to be the wave of the future. Uh, what we see around the world is a really breathtaking uh, pace of development in places that were once far flung um, all around the world. We've heard a lot about the deforestation of the rainforest and, and that sort of thing. We've got um, the expansion of mining industries and industrialization in parts of the world. We have 
the great growth of the economy in China, uh, great movements of population. I think everybody is, many of your listeners at least, have probably heard about the relocation of 250 million people in China into an urban environment, and that, that just gives you a sense of the dramatic changes that are happening all across the face of, of, of the globe. Now, my, my involvement with this was, uh, first of all, through the National Park Service. I was with them for about 20 years, and, of course, the mandate of the Park Service is to protect both the natural and cultural resources in, in the parks. And so in doing that, my primary job, I was chief of what was called the Applied Archaeology Center. My primary job was to work with planners and engineers and architects, make them sensitive to and aware of archaeological resources, bring them to the public's attention to help interpret them to the public, to present them in engaging ways, and and really try to bring them on board as advocates for the preservation of archaeological sites and archaeological materials. And then I think a turning point for me was in 1992 when um, my wife actually suggested to me that I apply for a Fulbright scholarship in, in what was then the fairly new field of cultural resource management. So they sent me to, uh, to uh, Thailand. And I spent about a year there, and that was a wonderful and eye-opening year, um, writing what are now used as cultural resource management guidelines for the, the 10 ASEAN countries in Southeast Asia. Uh, now, you know, as an archaeologist, we all love to do the research, and we all love to you know, get into the field and get our hands dirty. But that experience of being in Southeast Asia in 1992-1993 was an eye-opener because wherever I went, the question on people's lips was, you know, we've got these incredible archaeological sites, but, you know, how do we open them up to the public in such a way that we can preserve the values that are associated with the sites, that we uh, involve the local communities um, the people have expectations when an archaeological site becomes well-known and uh, great numbers of tourists begin coming to that site. They, the local communities have very big expectations that they're going, to, uh, they're, going to, they're going to share in the economic benefits, and that's where the planning comes in. So there are really you know, two main focal points here. One, one is how do you manage uh, how do you manage the increasing numbers of people that are coming to archaeological sites around the world? Uh, and then how do you involve local communities in such a way that their traditional ways of life are not suddenly disrupted, but also uh, they, that they actually gain uh, economically and socially? Uh, and th- those, are the two, th- those are the two big challenges that we see. You know, and and I think Doug, one of one of the really striking elements of all of this, and you're seeing it in uh, play out in a, in a variety of different kinds of venues right now, is uh, for a variety of reasons, and I'm sure we can talk about this forever. Some of the most magnificent wonders of the world and heritage management sites are located in in some of the most uh, poverty-stricken countries in the world. 
So you would see sort of a natural marriage between the cultivation of cultural heritage programs and uh, the development of countries in need of development and in need of in money and need of resources, witness Egypt and Iraq and, and places that are really sort of uh, conflict-stricken and poverty-ridden. And, and, and it, it just seems like such a natural marriage between, between interests and, and, and world, uh, world um, finance, if you will, that, that these types of economic codependencies should be cultivated. And yet it's a huge problem. And how, yeah, do, how do we make this work? How do we make this work? It's, it's, it's a problem that, that, that just seems to really not be very easily solved. Well, let's go back about 40 years uh, to the passage of the World Heritage Convention. Um, mm-hmm. And let's think about, um, you know, the, the intent. The World Heritage Convention is now the international treaty that's been signed by more countries than any other in history. And it's a wonderful idea. And as part of that World Heritage Convention, um, something called the World Heritage List was, uh, was, was instituted. So that list is supposed to be, and, and, and for the most part it is, a list of the most spectacular scientifically and historically important uh, cultural sites and natural sites actually in the world. Um, I say cultural and natural because we do have natural sites, for example, the United States, the Everglades is on the World Heritage List, um, and there are other natural sites. But three-quarters of those sites are cultural sites. So um, the, the, there's, there's enormous pressure now to inscribe uh, archaeological sites in particular that are of a fairly spectacular nature on that list because the World Tourism Organization and other tourism organizations actually uh, evaluate the economic potential for tourism based on the number of of World Heritage Sites uh, that are in a a country. And you're right, it's a natural natural marriage. Um, They have these wonderful sites. People want to see them. We're, we're in the middle now of evaluating the effects of tourists at four of the most preeminent archaeological sites. And those would be Petra in Jordan, where I've worked for a long time, um, it, you know, associated with Indiana Jones, come to think of it. Oh, yeah. Um, and, uh, Angkor in Cambodia, Machu Picchu in Peru, and, and Pompeii in Italy. At every one of those sites, what we see is that the floodgates have been opened um, for increased visitation. That in itself is not a bad thing. But in the 40 years that uh, since the World Heritage Convention uh, was ratified uh, by UNESCO, by the United Nations, we have, we're just learning now how to operate in countries where, as you say, the economic and financial and social systems are not well established. Um, there are issues with uh, infrastructure. There are issues with um, acquiring the kinds of trained personnel that are really absolutely necessary if we want to protect these sites. In other words, enough archaeologists, enough rangers, people who will provide health and safety protection for visitors, uh, and most of all, regional planning. So. Uh, and I'll, uh, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll use Petra because I know that um, 
you're, you, have, you have an interest in Petra with its association with, with Indiana Jones. When I was there, uh, Doug, we're going to have to take a break here for a minute, but we will come back and uh, discuss Petra and heritage management uh, after these words. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in a few seconds. Thank you. Okay. Sounds good. Voice counts. Call toll free 1 866 472 5787. 1 866 472 5787. VoiceAmerica.com. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Ready to chat about your favorite soap operas? The daytime discussion is here with Dan J. Kroll and Soap Central Live. For the past 15 years, Dan has been dishing and discussing on SoapCentral.com. And now he's taking the talk to the airwaves of the Voice America Variety Channel. You'll go behind the scenes with the biggest stars of daytime, along with guest commentary from the Soap Central columnists. And we'll take your questions and comments during our live show. Soap Central Live, every Friday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra-goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We're back. Uh, this is Joe Schuldenrein with our uh, featured program today on the Indiana Jones program on cultural heritage management. And I'm speaking with one of the world's experts on cultural heritage management. And what that refers to is really the cultivation of the tourist industry and the balancing of concerns in managing these magnificent cultural resources in many countries of the world and how to maintain them and to in many ways encourage economic development at these magnificent locations and uh, Doug uh, was talking about the evolution of Petra as a major national international monument why don't you tell us a little bit about your work in Petra and uh, give us a little bit of background on that magnificent city yeah Joe during the during the break you mentioned that you had been there and 1984, I think if you were to go back today, you'd find enormous changes. I was first there in 1987, and in that year, there were two hotels that one could stay in, uh, in the adjacent town, the little town at that point of Wadi Musa. Well, today, and I think as of, I recall about 10 or 12 years ago, there are 100 hotels uh, in Wadi Musa. Well, Doug, um, I will tell you that when I was there in 84, there was one hotel. 
You yeah, so you you got the original hotel. That's the I guest got the, the original. Guest house. Yeah, 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 yeah. And at that guest house, you have the uh, you have the uh, the tomb cafe. <laughs> this is a, the, we, the, what you have. I think in '84, you probably were getting about thirty thousand visitors to Petra. Uh, a couple of years ago, it was one million. So the the the, the numbers of visitors are just uh, have grown astronomically, astronomically. Now. Now, what, again, it's been 40 years since the, 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 uh, the ratification of the World Heritage Convention and the establishment of the World Heritage List, and we have, we've had to learn a lot very quickly. That whole uh, concept was really strongly influenced <clears throat> by the concept of the United States National Park Service. But the Park Service actually works very well, but remember, we have incredible assets uh, within the United States. Uh, we have infrastructure. We have lots and lots of trained people. We have people who actually volunteer as docents and guides and people to help pick up trash. We sure. have so many assets. Now, in a developing country, that's just not the case. Um, when I first started working at, uh, at Petra, for example, seriously, 1996, there was one landscape architect in the country. National mm-hmm. Park System has hundreds of landscape architects. And that, that just gives you a sense. We need people who are trained in mu- museum management, conservation approaches, um, rangers, actually. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a skill to be able to handle uh, the movement of people uh, through a site. And the Jordanians are famously hospitable. They really don't like to say no, and strangely enough, they're so they're so uh, reluctant, um, you know, to, to tell people what to do. Uh, they are more inclined to let them pretty much climb over the uh, the antiquities. There, they just it's so ingrained in their culture to be hospitable and not to say no to a guest. So. I mean, these are cultural differences, and it, as I say, it's a wonderful culture. But it's going to take, really, it's going to take a long time, you know, to provide that level of training, specialized um, experts, um, people who, uh, or who can manage uh, the numbers of, of people that are coming to the site. Um, it's all happened very quickly. It's, all, it's too much, really. It's too much and too soon. Now, the other aspect of this is that, as you mentioned, these sites are spectacular sites. People want to come and see them, and they can be enormous economic engines. So in Jordan, for example, Jordan doesn't have oil. Jordan has it's an economic base. It has agriculture. It has mineral extraction, and it has Petra. And in most of the last 15 years, Petra has brought more income to Jordan than any other Industry. So when um, aid organizations and <clears throat> lending institutions like the World Bank see the potential, they, they and, and this is understandable on a certain level, they will, they're willing to invest uh, large amounts of money. Uh, USAID um, provided a $30 million, not loan, but a grant uh, to, to Jordan a few years ago to to bring up, uh, more tourists into the country, and it worked incredibly well. What what they were not as focused on or aware of is the necessity to build up 
the infrastructure, right. the administrative right. management that is capable of, of accommodating that number of people. So everybody involved with this tourism industry at these preeminent archaeological sites is still involved with this learning curve. We have to understand we want to bring these people in, we, and, and, and if we want to bring them in and protect the site, and also to provide them with the best experience, the most enjoyable experience, we have to learn how to manage these large numbers of people. There are ways, that, there are ways of doing it, but it takes time and it takes training, and the investments from aid organizations and international banks has been largely on let's just get as many people here as we possibly can and not on the training and developing the infrastructure that's necessary to manage those numbers of people. So is this sort of short-term gain at the expense of long-term survival? I think that there is that very strong possibility. And, um, of course, I've worked with the tourism organization for for many years it's inevitable this is you know this is uh they have a very strong interest in 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 bringing people to these sites <clears throat> strangely enough i also know about the tourism industry because my wife was head of tourism for the state of maryland <laughs> okay uh-huh. so the metrics that are used in tourism are not um they're not they're not as precise as as, as one might wish if we have the objectives of providing economic benefit to local communities, let us say. Um, if you think about tourism, it's a, it's, 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 a, it's a pyramid, okay? When you go on a trip, you, you, you spend money for your plane ticket, and when you get there, you go to a restaurant. That's where most of your money is going. Uh, if you have some money left over, you're going to buy souvenirs, uh, you'll go out to dinner, that sort of thing. You, right. you'll, you'll, you'll take tours. But the, the, when you've traveled to this place and you've, you've ridden on an airline, that's an international corporation that, that is benefiting. When you stay at a Movenpick or, a, or a, a Sheraton, not to pick on them, but they're very well organized, that money's going to an international corporation. Um, if you choose to go to a restaurant and you're adventurous, you might go to a local restaurant, but the chances are as strong that you'll just, if you're in a hurry, too, and you're not spending a lot of time, you're going to go to the restaurant and the hotel. So that in itself is an area that needs lots more of attention. You're developing local entrepreneurship and investing in the, the development of these local economic uh, communities. Um, so this is something again um, that deserves uh, uh, much more attention than than it's been given in the past. Well, I, I think you're really onto something very major. I mean, uh, those of us and, uh, who have worked in 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 some of these very major sites. I mean, my own experience, having worked in uh, in Pakistan for for many years at the site of Harappa. Uh-huh. Uh, which is clearly one of the most important sites for uh, early civilization, one of the third millennium BC sites that uh, is associated with one of the hubs uh, or one of the cradles of civilization. And yet, there is really no tourism there, in part because 
Pakistan is what it is in terms of its political situation and, and the very obvious dangers associated with, uh, with that part of the world. But on the other hand, there really is no infrastructure whatsoever. You could walk around the mounds. You could walk around the areas that are really critical in terms of, of being archaeological monuments. And there's no instruction. There's no guidelines. There are no banisters. There are no porto potties. There's nothing really that would even draw in anyone other than a researcher who's uh, essentially doing work on the uh, the emergence of, uh, of civilization. And uh, without that, as you say, I mean, it's it's going to be impossible to cultivate this and to make these locations attractive to people. Now, obviously, when you're in a war zone, that's a whole other issue but i think and, and correct me if i'm wrong here is it more important or as important to invest in the infrastructure at the world heritage location as it is in the location itself well um i think that uh in one way or another we're talking about strategic planning and if you look at the sites that uh, have have accrued a great economic benefit. Uh, it, the, the, there's a, there are a number of things that happen. Typically, there's a huge push to have the site inscribed on the World Heritage List because that that gives it name recognition. Um, there's also uh, there are other efforts that are associated with that. Typically, there's the infrastructure developing the ways uh, ways for people to get people there. Uh, you work with the airlines, uh, you work with tourism organizations, uh, you build roads. Um, I think the turning point at Petra. There were several turning points, but it was it was part of a strategic decision to capitalize up on the economic potential of Petra. So. We had the inscription of Petra on the World Heritage List in 1985. 1989, we had the appearance of Petra in the Indiana Jones movie. Um, right, of course, yeah. Yeah, one of the tombs there, El Cosna, which means the treasury, uh, was was the the scene where um, the Holy Grail was found. So that was part of the, st- the strategy. But then... It was the building of the road from Amman, a very fast road from Amman uh, all the way to Petra, also um, scheduling flights into Amman. Uh, somebody was looking at this, and they came up with a strategic plan, and the strategic plan was very successful in, in the sense that it brought a lot of people to the site, and it generated a lot of income. It's at that strategic moment that one has to step back and say, how can we organize this so it's not just to bring money in, not just to generate income, but make sure that that, that income stays in the local community or even in, even in, within the country. That can be done, but it requires um, that a different kind of strategic thinking, not strategic strategic thinking that talks or that has as its goal primarily getting more people there, but strategic thinking that involves training the local community to revive traditional handicrafts, uh, to run their own small businesses, to run restaurants and hotels, to train restaurant and hotel workers. That's the sort of strategic thinking that in the end is going to benefit the host country much more than 
the sort of thinking that has uh, that we've seen at some of the major archaeological sites up until now. But again, I'm not sure that there's anybody. There, I'm not sure that there are any real bad guys here. Everybody has the best intentions. We need to look back at what has happened to places like Petra, places like Angkor, <clears throat> another country, a very poor country. I was there in 92 and it was uh there were no lights on you know people were operating with generators at at night it was a very very poor and a very sad country well now they're getting 2 million visitors to Angkor and they have built so many restaurants and so many hotels that those restaurants and hotels are pumping the water out of the ground to such an extent that it's undermining the foundation of these incredible monuments at Angkor, so Angkor Wat and Bayon and those sorts of things, are actually in danger of falling into the ground. And so, we'll be back and discuss this in, in some greater detail after these words. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Michelle Kors, Six Degrees is your connected consciousness. Six Degrees is what comes around, goes around radio. Committed to delivering a fresh perspective on thought-provoking, investigative information that can change your life. Six Degrees connects you to the social and emotional scene and is your trusted advisor from finance to romance, mainstream to metaphysical. It's a positive, upbeat look at life, love, and the pursuit of passion. Get connected Saturdays at 10 a.m. Pacific, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Adoption changes a family forever, for the adopters as well as the adoptees. There are many adjustments that need to be made, from lifestyle to financial, and the personal rewards are unlimited. Listen every week for Your Adoption Coach with Kelly Ellison. We will examine in detail such topics as international and domestic adoption. We will talk with adoption professionals and hear stories about real families adopting. If you've been thinking about adoption or recently began the process, you'll want to tune in to be inspired every Saturday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific, on Voice America Variety. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. We are talking with Dr. Douglas Comer, who is an expert in the area of cultural heritage management. And Doug has been telling us about the difficulties inherent 
in maintaining some of these largest uh, World Heritage Sites in the world, what's involved in actually um, making them part of the infrastructure or part of the, in a sense, economic base of the host countries in which they reside, and what it's going to take to bring these sites up to snuff in terms of making them self-sufficient, in a sense, economic basis that contribute to, uh, to their host countries, which in many cases are some of the poorer countries in the world. But, Doug, let's get back to an earlier question, which, uh, which we had bypassed somewhat, which is how does a site get nominated to uh, World Heritage status? Well, um when a country signs the World Heritage Convention, they become a, a signatory to that convention, and that that does a number of things. Basically, they're indicating their uh, with their willingness and their enthusiasm for developing the means by which to preserve and manage and protect both their cultural and their natural resources. Now, part of that then is. They, it becomes incumbent upon them to inventory, to look at their natural and cultural sites in their country and decide amongst the, the people in the country themselves what they consider to be the most outstanding uh, of those natural and cultural resources. So in order to be in, inscribed on the World Heritage List, there are a number of criteria but there's one that has that carries special weight, and that's called outstanding universal value. So, to be inscribed on the list means that there's something so special about this site that it's not exactly like any other site in the world. And when one visits visits that site and begins to understand and appreciate that site, one learns something special about humanity, about the human condition, and that really goes back to the driving force behind uh, the World Heritage Convention, which is to promote understanding among peoples of the world, to 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 promote the appreciation of diversity and different and and different cultures. So, within the country that signs the World Heritage Convention, um, they are to put together an organization that will identify their most important cultural and natural sites, and then. They put together something that's called a, ten, a tentative list, a tentative list. So every country, there are now about, there are 190 signatories, 190 countries who have signed the World Heritage Convention. Every one of those countries has put together or is in the process of putting together a list of what they consider to be not only their most important, most spectacular, most informative, most valuable uh, cultural and natural sites, but those that would offer something special to the rest of the world. So every country has a tentative list, and every country then has the opportunity to put forward a, no, a, nomin dossier, a nomination dossier for one or two of those, of those sites every year. Some countries take full advantage of this. Recently, China has been very, very intent on adding uh, numbers of sites to the World Heritage List from that country, and they've, they've, they're catching up to some of the, what had been the world leaders, uh, as one might expect, um, when the world, because the World Heritage Convention was ratified in 1972. There are many European countries who had a large stock of pretty spectacular sites, so we've got 
lots of sites from Italy and France and Germany. Of course, yeah. 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 Now, uh, a country like China, countries like China and Japan, but in particular China, China really understands um, the prestige, the world recognition that goes along with having a site inscribed on the World Heritage List, and they're very, very active, very, very active. They've, they're catching up to some of the European countries uh, very, very quickly. So every country then um, identifies what they consider to be their most important sites and the most the sites that would be of most value for understanding their culture uh, if they were to attract visitors from a different part of the world. Putting together the dossier is, uh, is not a simple process. Um, there are a number of things that, that must be addressed in the dossier, including levels of management, the, making a good case that the site can be managed uh, effectively and in a way that does not degrade those qualities that made it eligible for inscription to begin with. This is something, thank, fa- thankfully, that um, the World Heritage Committee, who, who meets and votes on these uh, nominations every year, is getting, getting more and more serious about. So putting together a dossier is a, is a very serious and sometimes a very expensive undertaking. And this is something that our particular scientific committee, uh, we have a scientific committee called the International Scientific Committee on Archaeological Heritage Management, and we would like to see more sites inscribed uh, by virtue of their scientific and historic values. Not to say we don't need you know, spectacular-looking sites like Machu Picchu and Petra, but we'd like to... We'd like the world to acknowledge that there are sites that may not be as beautiful or as, or as breathtaking that, um, that, that can convey something about the humanity, something special about humanity, um, if they're interpreted properly. Uh, so um, one of the things that we're doing then is to assist countries who don't or have not yet had the, uh, the, the resources to put together in a very effective, a very effective uh, nomination dossier. Now, this is a place, we think, where um, international lending institutions and the international aid organizations can really contribute. The decision to provide international aid, of course, is heavily influenced by political concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, the countries that receive international aid, uh, international aid is, 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 is an arm of foreign policy. This is very true. It's almost as though X amount of dollars are allocated to a certain country uh, because they are important to our national agenda. What right. we're suggesting is that more thought be given to how that funding is structured and that this funding could could um, contribute to these countries. Uh, we could it could it could be provided to these countries that really need to put together effective nomination dossiers. And by effective, we mean that the no- nomination dossier describes in pretty great detail how that site can be managed and presented to the rest of the world in a way that does not destroy it. And what we're suggesting is that 
the steps be laid out very carefully, and then funding be provided by international aid organizations. So we're talking about USAID, we're talking about JICA, we're talking about any number of European countries that are very active with foreign aid. We're also talking about lending institutions like the World Bank, like the Inter-American Development Bank. We think that this would be a much wiser investment on their part, rather than just kind of taking a more scattershot approach in, the, in providing foreign aid, let's target this. Let's look at ways that the money could be spent more wisely, more efficiently, and this would be one, one, one of those ways, helping these people develop a nomination dossier that, that unfolds in stages. So as time goes on, we're able to develop them, to, to assist them develop an effective management capacity and a way to present the site that engages the rest of the world in an enjoyable way, but also protects the site from uh, overuse uh, by, by managing the flow, the flow of visitors in such a way that it doesn't damage the site. Now, I imagine some of these sites are still being excavated, correct? Yes, indeed, and, and uh, it's another uh, another interesting aspect. Um, what we suggest is that the excavations themselves be integrated into the overall management objectives. Right. Um, it, in other words, if you go to a site like Petra or Angkor, Machu Picchu, Machu Picchu, they're wonderful sites, they're attractive sites. And lots of people would like to go there to excavate. In any given year at Petra, we have about 16 international expeditions. So what we're suggesting here is let's think about that strategically as well. Let's think about what we really need to know about that site that makes it, uh, that, that provides more information to the visitors and, uh, as well as to the scientific community. So we need an excavation plan for these sites as well. And we'll come back and uh, wrap up our show and speak to Doug about the future of heritage management after these words. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Are you a single parent trying to create the balance between home life and work life? You may be running a successful business, but how are your relationships with your family and children? If you're one of the thousands of people trying to juggle it all, Tune in to Straight Up with Chris, real talk on business and parenthood, hosted by Chris FSU. Chris is the portrait of the success story. Coming to the U.S. with no language skills, founding and growing several businesses while raising his daughter from age 7 to adulthood as a single dad. Listen every Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern, 3 p.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. 
Listen for Trust Across America every week on the Voice America Variety Channel. Tune in as host Jordan Kimmel is joined by national experts in the fields of accounting, finance, organizational behavior, and sustainability, as well as companies that are applying strategies that are enabling them to be recognized as doing the right thing by the American Trust Awards. Your host, Jordan Kimmel, is himself a trusted professional with years of experience in applying strategies and consulting with today's leading firms. Trust Across America is heard Wednesdays at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Variety. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to Indiana Jones Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. To be a part of our discussion today, please call 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. Or send an email to joseph.schuldenrein at gra goarc.com. Now, back to the program. Uh, I was talking to Doug over the break, and uh, by way of introduction, we are back on our discussion of cultural heritage management and the significance of internationally recognized uh, world heritage sites and uh, how they function and how they play a major role in the economies of of some of the developing countries in the world. And one of the topics that certainly strikes me, and and, uh, obviously Doug as well, is that in this... uh, uh, wacky world, if, if you want to call it that, of archaeological education, we are not tracking our students and our graduate students to pick up on careers in heritage management and cultural uh, cultural heritage management and preservation, tourism, ecotourism, and these are the careers that will eventually help structure where our profession is going, and yet we don't have training programs in place. We don't have educational programs in place. We don't have internships. We don't have an infrastructure, if you will, and we talked about that earlier. We don't have an infrastructure in in many of the advanced countries in the world that will allow practitioners to step into world heritage training and management to uh, to assume these very critical roles that are essentially administrative, management-related, and which will require a certain amount of international competence and communication to develop connections with these countries and with these programs that a lot of these countries are embarking on. Doug, what is the answer? (laughs) Well, I would say, um, you know, we all of us who are archaeologists, went into the field not to make a lot of money, obviously. Uh, we're driven by intellectual curiosity. Uh, we're driven by uh, the desire to get to know other places and other people in the world on a, on a, on a deeper level than, right. than other careers uh, you know, provide that opportunity. But what I find now that I've been, and, and I've been involved with the international uh, cultural resource management what, 1992, so it's been a while now. Time does slip by. I find myself speaking to people uh, who are trained in economics and political science. This is interesting because uh, we can get an advanced degree in archaeology and anthropology, uh, and we, we don't even have to take those courses. 
what I'm what I'm beginning to realize is that if you want to explain to people at USAID, they're going to come from a political science or an economics background. If you want to if you want to explain these issues, these problems, talk about solutions with people from the World Bank or the inter inter agent or inter 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 American Development Bank, you've got to be able to talk economics, microeconomics, macroeconomics. This is this is their motivation. This is their incentive, and it's a really there's nothing wrong with this incentive. Again, we're talking about political relations, about foreign policy. We're talking about economic development. We want to help these countries develop economically. What we need to be able to explain is how that can be done in such a way that we do not damage, that we don't kill the, the goose that laid the golden egg, which of is course. a term that that we've heard so much. I've, I've heard that you know as, as a when I was with the National Park Service too, the parks being loved to death. It's possible to love these these places to death. The other interesting thing about the tourism industry is that there are fads, and so. Right now, Petra is very, very hot, believe it or not. It, it's still regarded as a, a very exotic place. Well, eventually, a lot of people will have seen Petra. Are they going to come back to Petra, or are they going to move on to the, the newest exotic place? We find it more and more easy. It's more and more easily done to jump on an airplane and go to a far-flung place in the world. You know, we're looking at Micronesia, um, now, um, sites in Micronesia that would be nominated to the World Heritage List. And let me tell you, Micronesia is beautiful. There are other places in the world. There's lots of competition. So I know this from my experience with friends in the tourism industry. One can wear a destination out. It can become passe. Uh-huh. Uh, what we need to do is to think about sustainability in terms of tourism as well. There's always something else to say. There's always something else to present about a site, a more deeper explanation that will help people understand it. There, and I would also say that there are certain demographics that are natural audiences for travel to these kinds of sites, and they will stay not just a couple of days and check it off their list, this year Petra, next year the Pyramids, and next year Angkor. They're going to stay because they'll stay two weeks or they'll stay ten days, and they want to learn all they possibly can. They want to meet the local people. They want to eat the local food. They really want to understand the historical significance of those sites. Those are the kinds of interpretive programs that we really need to develop very carefully, and we also need to, under, we also need to be able to explain the economic value of that to the people who are really providing the funding and the impetus for the development of these sites. And, again, that goes back to being able to speak economics, sure. political science, tourism. Now, as far as I know, and people ask me all the time, how, where should I go to learn cultural resource management or archaeological heritage management? There are some good programs, uh, and I won't mention any of the schools, but... I would say at this point in my life, having having had the experiences that I have had, we need to think seriously seriously about developing um, graduate programs that incorporate some of these fields that, as archaeologists, we're not we have not been 
uh, thrown up against up until now. We, we need to be able to deal with these people, tourism, political scientists, economists, even and engineers and architects, uh, the people who, who are going to provide oh, regional planners. We, meet, we need to be able to talk with regional planners and explain to them that what they do two miles away from the core of a site, if they're, if they're pumping water out of the ground as they are uh, at Angkor, it's such with, you know, so much water that it's endangering uh, the foundations of these monuments. We need to be able to talk to them about that. So I'm hopeful that in the near future we're going to see some universities uh, come to that realization and begin to structure programs in archaeological heritage management, cultural resource management. That doesn't mean that we have to give up our research. It just means that we need to be able to be more sensitive to these issues and to converse with the various uh, stakeholders at these sites. And you would think that within the university structure that we have here, certainly the conflation of, say, skills in economics, political science, finance, engineering, all those departments and all those structures are present within the university and really what you'd have to do is just design an interdisciplinary uh, curriculum and, and course program that would just bring students in touch with all these with all these various departments and link them under an umbrella on paper in any case it sounds like it's not that daunting a thing to do no i think that i think it's an eminently doable thing you're going to run into you know uh the typical human um, desire to, in some cases, to protect academic turf or, you know, the stove piping. But the usual no, stuff, yeah. The, the usual thing, but that can, that can be overcome. And I, you know, I, I think that this is where we're going to have to go. Obviously, this is where we're going to have to go. This, this, uh, uh, this is way too, this has become way too much of an economic force. And Joe, as you, as you say, it is, in many of the underdeveloped countries, the developing countries of the world, this this is their strongest economic asset. That's correct, and you cannot lose sight of that at all. And on that note, I'm afraid we're going to have to wrap it up. I want to thank uh, my very special guest and, and colleague, Dr. Doug Comer, for spending an hour enlightening us on this very, very critical issue in, in archaeology, which is, of course, heritage management and the practical applications of that particular field in, in our general discipline and why we are going to need to cultivate those skills if we're going to move forward in our profession. And, uh, Doug, thanks so much for being part of the program. And I just want to say good, good evening to all of you, and we will see you next time. Thank you very much. Thank you, Joe. Enjoy it. Thanks again for tuning in to Indiana Jones, Myth, Reality, and 21st Century Archaeology with Dr. Joseph Schuldenrein. Please join us for another unique journey into the past next Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the meantime, think about the past with an eye towards the future and a better tomorrow. Tomorrow.